thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight, we're going to start talking about the liturgies around the temple. Before I start, though, I have a couple of things I'd like to touch upon, one of which came through our usual question and answer session. Not all of you attend that, but I think it's an important point. Um, It had to do with the relationship between the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Churches, and the Protestant Churches. Let me tell you, first of all, I really do recommend that you take the Council of Vatican II, and if you've not done so, Read it. Read the document of the Council of Vatican II. You, are, you, you owe it yourself to do that. It will be a wonderful study. It will open your mind and hearts to the teaching and the mind of the church. Basically, the two truths, as usual, we have to keep together. The first one is that we must affirm that there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. And by this we mean that the means of salvation to the world comes through and by the Catholic Church. That all those who are saved in the world are saved because of and through the Catholic Church. That's a fundamental affirmation we have to hold to. So the notion that we can simply say, you know, all Catholics, all Christians are the same, and we're just all in the same boat, and we have to be just charitable, meaning charity separated from truth, becomes charity that is self-serving. It serves me because I look good. So I can't do that. All right? So that's one pole we have to hold to. But there's another pole that we must hold to as well. And that is every movement, every church, every group that is praising the name of the Lord must be looked upon by Catholics with love, with respect, and with a deep-seated charity towards them, and with awe, because every one of those groups, think of it this way, form a road or a bridge that allows someone to get home. Now, naturally, the road and the bridge are not as important as home, but you just don't blow them off. Do you? Right? So keep things in the right proportion. Every time you meet uh, someone who's talking about the Lord, if love is not coming out of your heart towards this person, you're not going to be able to move his heart to look at the church. Don't, then don't, don't try. Alright? Don't try. That's very important. It's very important. So, 
we, ne we need to keep those two truths together. If you meet a Protestant, help him or her become the best Protestant they can be. Because they're then that's much closer to becoming a Catholic. If you meet someone who's a part of the Orthodox Church, help them become the best possible Orthodox person they can ever be. Challenge them to learn about their faith. Ask them, what does it mean to be an Orthodox? In charity, in love. Not challenge them as if, I'm going to just show you. That doesn't get you anywhere. But challenge them in love. If you truly love the Lord, come and know Him. So know your church. And in doing so, you brought them one step closer to the church. We're not here to perfect order. We're here to perfect love. But love cannot be divorced from truth. The two go hand in hand. Keep that in mind. Now, I want to talk about something completely different. Something that really, uh, that, you know, I got a kick out of this. I'm going to talk to you about molecules. You know, molecules are the stuff from which life is made, right? Now, a molecule has what in it? Let's see how many of you remember your chemistry or your physics. What's in the molecule? There's an, there's an atom. Atoms, right? Perfect. Now, atom is a Greek word that means what? Atom. Non-divisible. They thought that was the smallest thing that you can just divide. Turns out that you can actually divide it. Which goes to say that science actually makes more mistakes than it tells truth. Remember that. In the 19th century, everybody was convinced the universe was eternal. That was a scientific truth. Well, it doesn't have to be that true, did it? Now, an atom is made of a nucleus and a bunch of electrons, which are zipping around the nucleus, right? Okay, so let's forget about the electrons. Let's drop them out. Now we have a nuclei, nucleus. The nucleus is made of smaller things. Those smallest things were called nucleons. You're with me so far? Nucleus, nucleons. A bunch of things inside the nucleus. Now those nucleons themselves, they have names such as protons or neutrons, are made of even smaller stuff. And that stuff are quarks. And the stuff that keeps the quarks together called gluons. You know, for Elmer's glue. Its purpose is to keep them together, right? Quarks, gluons. Now, if you have a nucleus, right, the nucleus which is the stuff that an atom is made of with the electrons, if you take the electrons away, the thing becomes an ion. They call them an ion. And if that ion has a lot of those nucleons, neutrons and protons inside of it, it's called a heavy ion. Okay? So, for instance, if it had, let's say, 79 neutrons and 180 protons, it's a heavy ion. We call that usually gold. That's gold, by the way. All right, so here are the neutrons and the protons living in that nucleus. And inside of them, you have the quarks and the gluons. The quarks can't really budge because they're held together by the gluons. Why is that important? Well, in the Big Bang Theory, there is this notion that in the first one millionth of a second, the quarks and the gluons were free, floating around freely. That's a theory, right? 
Well, what they're floating in? Well, they were floating in something they call a plasma. So you get, you get something called the quarks, gluons, plasma, QGP. All right? So you have an ion which is heavy, like gold, a heavy ion. And let's assume that this ion is zipping along 99.5% of the speed of light. We call that relativistic speed. That's a term. So you get relativistic heavy ions. Now, wouldn't it be fun if you could get two of those to collide, hit each other? That'd be really fun. And the thing that gets them to collide at that speed is called a collider. So you get a relativistic, relativistic heavy ion collider. Rick. Hi, Rick. Rick exists. It exists. It, it's about a 2.4 kilometer magnetic highway which intersects at four different locations. And Rick is able of shooting a whole bunch of ions, gold ions. And those guys actually do collide. And then what, when they collide, something really interesting happens. You know what happens? Heat is produced. And when heat is produced, if sufficient heat is produced, then anything happens. The neutrons and the protons break apart, and for a very short moment, the quarks and the gluons are free, which allow us, therefore, to observe what the universe looked like in the first millionth of a second of its existence. Isn't that neat? I mean, come on, this is amazing. It's been, it's, it's, it's been going on for the past three years. Here's the really interesting thing that really I got a kick out of. The theory stated that the quark gluon plasma was a gas, because at such a high temperature, you're dealing with gas. Guess what they found the quark gluon plasma to be? It's not gas. It's liquid. In fact, they think it's the most perfect liquid that ever existed in the universe. Now, why is that all important? What does that have to do with the Bible study? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. It really gives me you know, a kick when I read this. Because if you really think about what Moses must have done. Moses, remember, Moses grew up as a son of Pharaoh. What does that mean? It means that Moses grew up believing that you had a whole bunch of gods who created the universe and take care of it. That was his belief. So when he met God, what do you think he did? All right, God, I'll go to Egypt and I'll tell Pharaoh all this stuff. And then God showed him he's stronger than all these gods with the ten plagues. So Moses is computing. He's realizing God is stronger than all these gods. But it doesn't necessarily follow that God created all that. Does it? So he must have asked. And I am convinced that God, because Moses was speaking face to face to God, God gave him a vision of the creative act. And that vision was recorded in words that are meaningful back then, not literalistically, but meaningful back then as they are today. And if you really think about this, it makes sense. That's what must have come about when he spoke to God. And I think that's the most reasonable way of apprehending the first chapter of Genesis. So the whole notion that 
your take on the creationist spin to me is kind of an unrealistic. I don't see it happening in a creationist spin, you know, seven days and all that. I think those were words that Moses used to convey this truth that God showed him, which today the most prevalent theory of science is confirming as we move forward. I just wanted to share this with you because I thought it was really cool. Tonight we have a fairly heavy schedule. We'll see how well we fare. We're going to be talking about something that is of the utmost importance to our subject, the Jewish feasts. The Jewish feasts are going to be very important for us, and I'll show you, hopefully I'll be able to show you why, um, through a number of quotes from Scripture. If you follow with me, on, on the basic, on the right-hand side, you have a copy of the temple. Uh, hopefully it's readable. So you have the court of the woman. On the, you can see on the bottom you have the beautiful gate leading to the court of the woman. So this is the inner sanctuary of the temple. And then um, there you see the chamber of wood, chamber of the Nazarites, chamber of oils, and the chamber of lepers. The chamber of lepers, for instance, would be where a leper would go to be inspected by a priest when he was healed. Right? It would be here. Um, and then you have the Nicanor Gate with the 15 steps. Those 15 steps were where the 15 ascending psalms were sung during different liturgies. This is Psalm 120 through 134. All right. So you had a choir of about 500 Levites standing on those stairs and singing those psalms. And then behind it, uh, in the court of the priests, where you see the stairs leading to the porch where the holy is, you'd had a choir, a second choir of 500 priests singing it as well. So you had about a thousand men singing the songs. Just try to imagine that. Um, then when you enter through the Nicanor Gate, you have the court of the Israelites, that you see it right there, and then you have the ramp leading to the altar. That's the altar of sacrifice. You see the tethering place. This is where they actually hooked all the, the, the animals that were to be sacrificed. And next to it, you had the slaughtering place. And it's a pretty heavy-duty operation going on there. But each one of those is actually reminiscent of the Passion of Christ. The tethering place was a column to which they attached those animals when they flayed them, meaning when they took the skin off, which is, of course... The scourging of Christ. Okay. And the altar of sacrifice, this, this altar here is, and the ramp is his, uh, you know, the way the cross, and the altar is when, when he was crucified, and, and so on and so forth. So, and then you have the laver, laver next to it. The laver was huge, actually. It was a huge laver. It was a, you, 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 my understanding is you can have about 30 people sitting in it. It wasn't a small thing, right? Then you had the court, of the court of the priest leading to the porch, and inside you had the holy place, and then behind the curtain you had the holy of holies. We've covered all that last time. I just wanted to give it to you. Now, let's move on and talk about the Jewish calendar. You have the temple, but they were doing things in the temple. What are the things they were doing? Well, they were celebrating liturgies according to a liturgical calendar. Just as we have a liturgical calendar, they had a liturgical calendar, and ours actually is derived from theirs. Okay? Let's see how. First thing first, you notice that the Jewish calendar is based on the cycles of the moons. And that's where we get the word month from moon, month. 
All right? So it's lunar-based. That led to some complications because certain feasts had to happen around um, the beginning of spring and the beginning of summer, which, of course, are solar-based. So there was a complicated calculation going on to, meet, to, mat, to match this to that. The names that you see here, Nisan, Ayar, Sivan, Tammuz, Ab, Ailur, Tishri, uh, those of you who are from the Middle East were using the same. Those are actually Babylonian names to the, to the months. Right? Nisan happens actually around the month of April. That's why it used to be that the year began April 1st. Hence, we get the April Fool's Day. Because the year actually started on April 1st. And it was moved back to January. Uh, don't remember exactly. I think it was the Julian calendar, right? This is the whole business of Julian uh, versus the you know, different calendars. But be it as it may, in Nisan, you have three feasts. On the 14th of the month, you have Passover. From the 15th to the 21st, seven days, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's a high holy day where men are required to go up to the temple. And that's when Jesus stayed behind. It was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In that feast, on the 16th, you have the Feast of First Fruits. Okay? Fifty days later, you have the Feast of um, Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. So the Feast of First Fruits indicates the, the beginning of spring, and that's when barley was offered at the temple. And seven weeks later, you had the Feast that um, gathered the barley. So that's the spring, that's the spring um, harvest. Now notice, don't think of it as religious feast superimposed on natural cycles because this is nice. Keep in mind the connection between the cosmos as a temple and the temple as a temple. The two are linked. That which is celebrated at the temple is celebrated in nature. You understand? Therefore, that which we celebrate in the liturgy impacts the universe. That's a very important element we have to keep in mind. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks. Now, Passover, as you know, was subsumed into the Mass, right? Or Passion. That's essentially Passion Week. Unleavened bread and first fruits are really the first week of Easter. Because first fruits occur on the third day when the Lord rose from the dead. He is the first fruit. And we'll see a lot of references from Paul and James to Christ being the first fruits. And even in Revelation, we have first fruits. So every time you see this in Scripture, you can't pass by and ignore it. You can't think of it just in terms of harvest. You have to think of it in terms of the liturgy. So when they say first fruits, what they mean is the whole entire liturgy at the temple. 
It's the key word that brings all that back. Just if I say Holy Thursday, I'm not just talking about the day. You know I'm talking about the liturgy of Holy Thursday and everything that happens. It's the same thing. You'll see how liturgical Scripture is and you will see how liturgical the book of Revelation is once we go through these feasts. Now, the Feast of Weeks, of course, is Pentecost. Right? It's Pentecost. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to ignore uh, Tisha B'Av, which really means, for those of you who, who speak Arabic, I'll say it a little bit differently, Tis'ab Ab, the ninth of Ab. That's what it is. And we, we're not going to talk about it. We don't have, we don't have time. I'm going to move on to the, to the three next feasts. The most important feast, the, the feast of the Lord, the feast that the Lord established are seven. I've talked to you about four. Those are not feasts established by the Jews. Those are feasts established by God. All right? He established those feasts. These are his feasts, and he wanted them celebrated. I've talked to you about four of those. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. The three next set consist of the first one, which we call Rosh Hashanah, and again, for those of you who, can, who speak Arabic, Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, head of the year. But that's, that is an, that's a late name given to the feast. That name was given after the destruction of the temple. Before the destruction of the temple, it wasn't called Rosh Hashanah. It was called, actually, the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. Now, for those of you who've read the book of Revelation, you know that there's a whole series called The Seven Trumpets. That should clue you in relating that to the Feast of Trumpets. And there's a really good reason to do that. Next is the holiest day in a Jewish calendar. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Right? And then, a very important yet neglected feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. Now, Sukkot celebrates the, the summer harvest, the harvest of wheat. Uh, Hanukkah, though, it's kind of interesting, because a lot of people probably know Jewish friends, and they wish them happy Hanukkah, but they don't really know what Hanukkah is. Hanukkah is a minor feast, not a major feast. It is a feast of rededication of the temple by the Maccabees after Antiochus Epiphan had uh, desecrated the, the, the temple and the Maccabees were able to regain control over the temple and rededicate it, that's Hanukkah. It's a rededication of the temple, which today for most Jews is a little bit moot because, well, there's no temple, right? The most important thing we want to focus on are those seven feasts. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, the, week, the Feast of Weeks, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. I have here with me a really good reference. Well, it's a fairly good reference, I would say. I don't have all the ones with me. It's called The Feasts of the Lord. Kevin Howard and Marvin Rosenthal. They're both Protestant, probably of the Baptist current. And they are... Um, um, they believe in the, uh, in the rapture and all that good stuff. 
So you have to kind of sift through and then and take the take that stuff out and keep the good stuff in. That's what we're going to try and do. But there's a lot of good, really good um, information in this book. So I do recommend it with, re with reservations. Let's try and see how far we can get. My goal tonight is to cover the first four feasts. Let's see if we can do that. So the first four feasts, you understand, happen all in the months of Nisan. And it's one full week of celebration starting on the 14th all the way through to the 21st. Passover was, you know that Passover, Passover and unleavened bread are the two feasts that were established by the Lord before the Exodus. They were still in Egypt when those feasts were instituted. And again, I repeat, those are not feasts that were man-made. Those were given directly by God and how to celebrate the feast was established by the Lord. Now, in Exodus 11, God told them that he would, at the tenth plague, pass by and he would kill the firstborn, the firstborn of every man and every animal unless the house was covered, the lintels of the, house, of the door doorposts were covered with the blood of a lamb. And he specifically told them what they had to do. On the tenth of the month, they had to take a lamb, one year old, without blemish. So the lamb had to be completely white. White. One speckle of color on it and the lamb was with blemish. You're with me? They had to take the lamb ten on the tenth of the month, so four days before. Two reasons were given. Number one, so that they could make sure that the lamb was without blemish. And number two, so that they can grow attached to it. Okay? In other words, the Jews living in Egypt could not go to the local bonds on the 13th at 8 o'clock and just buy a lamb. That would not work. They had to take the lamb out on the 10th and keep it for three days so that they can become attached to it. It had to be their own lamb. And then they had to slaughter the lamb publicly. They couldn't do it inside their house. It was a public act. All of them had to come out and all of them had to slaughter the lamb by cutting the throat. And then they had to receive the blood in a cup. And that's the blood that they used to put on the lintel post of the door so that when the Lord would pass by, he would pass over that house and would not kill the firstborn. Hence, pass over. All right? Now, there's a couple other things they had to do. That was very important. They had to roast the lamb, and they had to eat it. There's none of that, I'm vegetarian, I'm just going to eat a piece of bread instead, or a piece of um, artificial lamb made of mushroom. You had to eat the roasted lamb. So what happens to the lamb when you roast it? 
fundamentally, the fire is changing its nature. Right? The meat will look different, will taste different, will feel different. You had to eat the lamb. Okay? So, from a from an analogical point of view, the analogical reading, if you remember the four senses, the reading that pertains to, the anagogical reading, I'm sorry, the reading that pertains to Christ, what is that telling us? The lamb without blemish, one year old, in the fullness of his age, young, without blemish, representing Christ, who is sinless, who became the sacrifice for our sins, Christ was publicly sacrificed. They all took part in that sacrifice. And his blood came upon them, their heads, right? That's what they said, let his blood come upon us. Now there are those who think that because the Jews said, let his blood come upon us, therefore they're cursed. And that's actually, a, uh, that's against the, the teachings of the church. By them receiving the blood of Christ upon their heads, they were blessed. Alright? That's a blessing. Now, Christ died and rose. And what happened to his body after he rose? His body was glorified. The nature of his body changed. So the fire of death changed the nature of his body. And what do we have to do? We have to eat the lamb. You get it? That is the power behind Passover. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the liturgy of Passover as it was celebrated during Christ's time. It was known as the cedar meal. That's what Christ celebrated. He celebrated the cedar meal. The cedar meal had, as part of the celebration, four cups. There were four cups, and there were three unleavened bread. Three. At the beginning of the celebration, the second bread, not the first, the second, was broken. One part of it was wrapped and hidden. And then later in the, ceremony, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the in the meal, the kids would have to go through the house to find it. And whoever gets it gets actually a prize. So even today, observant Jews will go through that cedar meal and they will do the same thing. Four cups. When the first cup is poured, if I'm not mistaken, I want you to listen to that blessing of the first cup. The beginning of the blessing especially. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. Now those of you who are of the Latin rite, that should sound familiar, isn't it? That's the blessing that is given before, at the beginning of the liturgy of the Eucharist. Where does it come from? It comes straight from there. Okay? So that's the blessing. The blessing is longer, right? Blessed art thou, Lord our God, who has chosen us for thy service from among the nations. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has, who has kept us in life, who has preserved us, and has enabled us to reach the season. That's taking the cup and giving thanks. 
Then, guess what they do? They have to wash their hands. Ever wondered why the priest washes his hands? They had to wash their hands. To be clean before the Lord. It's a, right, what does the priest say in the Latin rite when, when he goes to this? When he's washing his hands? Right. How could it be that washing his hands will take away his iniquities and cleanse him from his sin? That is directly from the temple. Okay? That's directly from the temple. Now Jesus changed that, didn't he? They were supposed to wash their hands. What did Jesus do? He got up and washed their feet. Feet. Right? That's what he did. He washed their feet, which was a complete shock to all of them. First of all, only a slave is supposed to wash your feet, not the master of ceremony. And secondly, most, even most importantly, he was derogating, he was moving away from the cedar meal. He changed the celebration. Now you need to understand the... Co- okay. It might seem like, okay, he did that, so what big deal? Now, it is a big deal actually a huge deal. That liturgy is sacred. It's given to us. We don't own it. We participate in it, but it's not ours to own. We have no authority over it. Okay? No Jew of his own could actually take the celebration of Passover and change it much less a Catholic who changes the celebration of the Mass. We don't own the liturgy. We don't have no right to change it. You understand? How could he have done that? How could he have changed the liturgy unless he was the author of that liturgy? That must have gone through their minds. So after this washing of the hands, they t- he takes the bread, breaks it, and then one part is covered for later use. At this point in the Seder meal, there are four questions asked by the younger kids, and that will induce the master ceremony to actually go through and retell the story of Passover. And presumably, Christ used that as the occasion to explain to his disciples what's really going on. Then the second cup. The second cup of wine is poured, and, and it's, it happens during that narrative. And the interesting thing is that every time they, they talk about the ten plagues, a tiny bit of wine is poured out for each plague. This expresses the sorrow felt for the suffering of the Egyptians. This expresses the sorrow felt by the Jews for the suffering of the Egyptians. It's not, a, it's, it's, a, it's not a well-known fact. But that's what happens during the second cup. Sorrow, not pity. Sorrow. Then there is the dipping of the matzah, the dipping of the unleavened bread. That's when Christ said, he who dips his bread with me, that's the one. Right? No, he who I dip the bread and I give it to him, I'm sorry, that's the one. Right? He usually, usually when he dips the bread, the master sermon will give it to a guest of honor. And Christ dipped his bread in, 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 in a mixture made out of horseradish and apple mixture. And the reason is that the horseradish represents the slavery and the apple mixture represents the sweetness of them being saved from 
being taken away from the slavery of the Egyptians. And that's what Christ gave Judah. Then there's the dinner, which is essentially what? A lamb, a roasted lamb. Now, I told you about that piece of bread, right, that was broken, one of which is hidden and put away. I told you there were really three unleavened breads. The second one is the one that is broken. That piece which is hidden away and brought back is called the afikomen. Afikomen is actually a Greek word. It's the only word in the whole liturgy. If you ask the rabbis, why are you breaking the second bread? They are at loss of explaining it. Because to them, the first, second, and third bread either represents the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, in both cases, why are you breaking the priests and why are you breaking Isaac? There's no answer. But guess what afikomen means? It's a Greek word, and you know what it means? It means, I came. I came. Now, who are they breaking? How do we look at it? Three breads, the three persons of the Trinity. Who are they breaking? The second. And what do they do? They break it, and they wrap it, and they put it away. And then, they go back and find it with rejoicing. You see how the new is hidden in the old? Do you see it? No. And even today, they still don't understand that. The third cup is called the cup of redemption. That is the cup that Christ used. That's the cup he used when he blessed it. That's the cup he blessed and gave. It's called the cup of redemption. And then he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I will not drink from the fruit of the wine until I drink from it in the kingdom of my Father. What was he saying to them? That he's not going to drink the fourth cup. The four cups. He drank the third, not the fourth. Right? You see how he masterfully changed the liturgy. And then they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he prayed, and what did he say? Father, if it is possible, let this... Right? And what is this cup? Fourth cup. Fourth cup. Then he's crucified, and at one point, what does he say? I thirst. I thirst. And what do they bring to him? Pardon? The cup of consummation. What do they bring to him? Vinegar mixed with... Vinegar is what? It's sour wine. And what does he do? He drinks. He drinks. What does that mean? The kingdom has come. That is so critical for our study. Because... If we do not understand that the kingdom has come, then much of what we're going to see in the book of Revelation will not make sense to us. We will be forced to take on a futurist view and only look at the book of Revelation as the future fulfillment of a materialistic kingdom on earth. And then we're off into you know, John Wayne and cowboys and Star Wars and all that good stuff. All right? That is so important. The kingdom has come. By the way, one of the hymns, 113 through 118, 
Let me just go to the Psalms. This, these are the four Psalms of the Halal, uh, which are the four Psalms that are sung in the cedar meal. And I just want to point out another really interesting little thing here. I want to read from um, Psalm 118, which is the last psalm of the four psalms called the Halil in the Cedar Me. Listen carefully. The stone which the builders reject, I'm reading from verse 22, has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Alright? So in the Maronite liturgy, in the intro prayer, we have that song quoted. This is the day that the Lord has made. Which day? Which day? The day. Which day? Monday? No. The eighth day. That's how Paul takes on this whole notion of the eighth day. It comes after seven. That's why we celebrate the liturgy on the Sunday, which is the eighth day, the new day, the new creation, the new age, the new world order that happened on that day, the day that he rose from the dead, the eighth day. All right? And again, you see how we celebrate it here in the liturgy. We quote from Psalm 118 because it's the psalm that is part of the cedar meal of Passover. That's Passover, very briefly. Let's move on. The next feast that I'd like to talk about, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is observed in the early spring. It begins on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan and lasts for seven days. During those seven days, you cannot eat bread that has leaven in it. One of the meanings of leaven is what? What does leaven represent? You know, yeast is what, right? Sin. Sin. But remember, leaven is not just sin. Because Christ uses leaven in a different way. Right? You're supposed to be the leaven that raises the bread. So it's grace. Okay? But in that context, leaven represents sin. So before the feast, observant Jews will go through their entire house and they have to clean the entire house and make sure there is no leaven anywhere. In fact, the prescription that God gave them is that not only they cannot eat leaven, they cannot, there can be no leaven in their homes and no leaven in their territory. And if anyone is found with leaven, he is to be excommunicated. Alright? That's how strict this observance was. Why? Because, what is he teaching us? through this. You cannot be in the state of sin and receive Christ. If God in the Old Testament insisted so much on outward cleanliness, how much more does he care about inward cleanliness? Our soul being in the state of grace so we can receive him. And that's why I do admit to you that I am hmm, let me say it's to me, it's, it's sort of a physical impossibility when I see Catholics receiving communion and haven't gone to confession in the past month. It kind of blows my mind away. I'm, I'm amazed. 
I mean, either they're able to hold on for the whole month without any sin, which is amazing to me. Okay? Uh, or, 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 um, or they are in a state of what I call material impossibility. It's one of my geeky terms. To express that something seems to exist but doesn't really exist. See, if you haven't started taking confession seriously, if there's anything you kind of remember from this whole Bible study, it's confession, seriously, meaning at least once a month. Please start. Now, the feast was instituted in Leviticus chapter 23. Um, it is one of the three pilgrim feasts where Jews had to go up to Jerusalem. The two other ones being the Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost, and week, the Feast of Tabernacles. What is so important about this feast? What is really important about it is its use in Scripture, especially by St. Paul. Let's take some examples, and, and of course the meaning for us. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. 1 Corinthians And then key in on the way St. Paul is talking. And you see the liturgy behind his words. So 5, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 uh, through 8. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay? So, he is actually making references to three things. To two things. The Paschal Lamb, which is Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the festival. Alright? That's where, this is his reference. That's his frame of mind. It's the liturgy. Not just the natural stuff. Because remember, St. Paul was a city dweller. He was not a farmer. He lived in a city. So his frame of reference is not farming. His frame of reference is the liturgy. And you can see it here. What he has in mind is the prescription given by God that you have to clean yourself. And he takes that. He takes it from the old, applies it to the new, goes from what is exterior to what is interior. All right? Let's move on to the Feast of First Fruits. Now, the Feast of First Fruits is, again, one of those feasts that we ignore most of the time because we don't really understand its importance in Scripture. And I'll show you its importance even in the book of Revelation. Hopefully, after I've gone through these three, these three feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, I'll read to you a couple of sections from the book of Revelation, and hopefully it will fall in place for you you'll see how it's a lot easier to get into the book than it must have been before. 
So, as I said, first fruit marked the beginning of the cereal grain harvest in Israel. Barley was the first grain to ripen of those sown in the winter months. So for first fruits, a sheaf of barley had to be brought to the temple. And they could not harvest the barley until first fruit was presented. It was presented earlier because they wanted to ask the Lord for a good harvest. Again, I want to caution you on linking it to a sort of a naturalistic religion or a um, religion that is um, purely uh, opportunistic. I need a good harvest, I'll go to the temple, ask God to give me a good harvest and give me a good harvest. This is what I call the Santa Claus syndrome. You know, God give me a Ferrari please. I'll be a good kid, give me a Ferrari. Right. What am I trying to tell you? Again, the connection between the temple and nature is so important. Nature is a macro temple. The temple is a micro universe. All right? So when I go to the temple, to the dwelling of the Lord, the way I am going to behave, my righteousness, the way I'm going to celebrate that liturgy that he established for me, is directly connected to the liturgy of nature where barley is growing. You getting that? We don't look at barley growing as a purely naturalistic thing. It's the liturgy of nature. It's a celebration of nature corresponding to the celebration of the temple. The two are intimately, mystically linked. And I think you can measure how far we've moved away from this because of the influence of the materialistic world around us where we've divorced our liturgy in the church from the liturgy of nature. Out there in the world, you have science ruling, and science explains everything, and liturgy has no place. And inside here, well, we have our faith, and we just keep it inside in our homes, and that's it. And the two never mix. Right? That is not Christianity. That is not what we've been taught. All right? Now, as far as the celebration of the first fruit itself, I might, I'm, I'm tempted to skip it at this point because it's not going to have much of an impact. What I would rather, what I will tell you though is this. There was in Jerusalem a valley called the Valley of Ashes, which is across from the Kidron. And that was, and in that valley there was a spot which was reserved for the barley that was grown and offered as a first offering to the Lord in the temple. And right around that time, and, and, there, and those barley that were reserved for the offering were specifically marked. And, and on the day of the feast, you had a procession that came from the temple down to that, to that field where you had priests with sickles in their hands who went and cut the barley they brought back and offered it. All right? Now, what does that barley represent? Barley is a grain, right? What did Christ say? Unless a grain, right? So when they cut the grain, the, 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 the barley with the sickles, what are they doing? Right? So what does the barley represent? Christ who was condemned to death. You understand? 
You see how everything was pointing to that event to help them see it, to teach them about it, to prepare them for it. Everything pointed to that event. In the temple court, the grain was threshed with rods rather than oxen. Why do you think it was threshed with rods rather than oxen? They had to beat it. What is that representative of? Again, the scourging. And then, they had to um, ground it. They had to ground it so fine that a priest, there was a priest who was an inspector. And the way he'd inspect it is that he would take his both hands and put it in the flower. And if he could pull his hands without any grain, nothing, no grains on his hands, he would declare the, the flower fit for the offering. This is how fine they had to ground it. It was a long process. Why do you think they needed to do it this way? Think about that for a second. Right? Because that represents the purity of Christ who is being offered. Right? But it also represents the end of that priesthood. Because they had nothing to do with the offering. His hands was clear. They had to mix it with three-quarter pint of olive oil. So five pints of barley flour mixed with three-quarter pint of olive oil and a small amount of frankincense. And this became the first fruit offering. And they had to wave it before the Lord literally in the form of a cross. So if you see in our liturgy when Father Nabil actually raises the offering and, and then moves them around, this is not, again, something we came up with because it looks really neat. It comes straight from the temple. Now, first fruits. Paul in Roman, for instance, chapter 16, verse 5, speaks of Epainatus as the first fruits of Achaia. Okay? Um, again, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, Now, brethren, you know that the household of Stephanus was the first converts in Achaia. Here, first converts is also in the Greek rendered as first fruit. All right? And, and what he has in mind is, again, that feast. Now, you'll also find it more explicitly stated in um, Roman, 11, Roman 11, verse 16. So, in Roman 11, we read, So, Paul is speaking about the Jews, where he's saying, he says this, Now, if, if I'm speaking, okay, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus have some, save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, meaning if them being rejected means that the Gentiles were able to enter into covenant with God, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What will their acceptance mean by life from the dead? Which means that when they, when the Jews convert and enter the church, 
massively, that's a good sign that the end is close. Alright? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What does he get this imagery of a dough offered as first fruits? Okay? Directly from the liturgy of the temple during that week. That's what he's thinking about. We read this, being in the liturgy, what are we thinking about? The kitchen. Oh yeah, dough as a first fruit. Yeah, that's, that's poetic. That's, that's kind of nice. I mean, think about it. A dough fruit. Think of a dough as a fruit. You don't. Where's that imagery coming from? It's strange, unless you understand it in the context of the temple. Right? Another important chapter is Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 through 8. So, actually, I might start a little bit earlier at 6. Chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black a sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and, and generals, and the rich and the strong, and everyone, slave and free, hid in a cave and among the rocks of the mountains, calling the mountains and the rocks, fall fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. Right? The great day of the wrath has come. Now the first, this, this one passage just read to you, again, we don't read it in a literal sense as if, you know, physically all these things are happening. It's a deconstruction. It's bringing a world to an end. Right? So the moon, the stars, and the sun are the electrical switches that allow the clock to work. And the clock is measuring time since the foundation of that age. And now you're switching all that off, saying the age has come to an end. The interesting piece here is this. From save us from the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, what Lamb? Passover Lamb. Alright? Passover Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. Which great day? Which great day? Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. Which is the fifth feast. We haven't talked about this one. That was known as the Day of the Lord. The interesting thing about Yom Kippur is that it's the only feast that starts on a new moon. So therefore, it starts in darkness. The moon is not shining. That's why it was spoken of as a dark day. If you've heard about the three days of darkness, that's where it comes from, by the way. A dark day. That's the great day of the Lord. Yom Kippur. You see how this event is sandwiched between two liturgical events? Passover implying the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
first fruits, and then um, the Feast of Weeks, all the way to Yom Kippur. Alright? Those are the keywords that you use to recognize liturgically what's going on. Let's keep on reading. Now, after that, I saw the four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, and then I went on, um, and he called with a loud voice, who had been given power to harm it, so I heard the number of the sealed. So he's sealing all these who are heard. Who, he's sealing the 144,000, right? And there's a list of the tribes. We'll go through this in detail later when we get to the book. But what does it say? These are the 144,000 which are sealed, and there's a great multitude that comes after them, right? Which is described here after this, I looked and behold a great multitude which no man could number from every nation. Who are these 144,000? We've talked about that a number of times. Well, who are those 144,000 mentioned here? All right, this is where the Jehovah Witness, you know, go on that, that, that tangent. But if you now go to Revelation 14, you have the answer. In Revelation 14, you see this. Then I looked, and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. Right? Those are the 144,000. Who are they? Who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps, and they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defied themselves with women, for they are chaste. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. Okay? They are the first fruits. Now, who are the first fruits? Where do they come from? St. James speaks of them, the apostles, and the followers as first fruits. St. Paul does the same. So therefore, who are those 144,000? They are a group representing the Christians of Jewish background. The first fruits. Immediately coming from the Lord. And the other indication is that they have the name of the Lord on their forehead. What does the high priest has on his forehead? Holy unto the Lord in the Day of Atonement. He has to wear that in every celebration when he enters into the, the Holy Temple. Holy unto the Lord. That's the name he has on his forehead. Okay? This is how the book makes sense when you read it liturgically. When you understand the liturgy of the Temple, you start to understand what is happening behind that liturgy, behind the words of St. Saint, of, 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 um, Saint John. So, for instance, um, St. James in 118 speaks of the, those who have been converted. And remember, St. James was what? He was the bishop of which city? Jerusalem. As the first fruits. All right? Now, those of you who understand database theory, there is something we call referential integrity, meaning that if I insert something in one table in a database, I'm, I'm going to make sure that it doesn't hurt anything else. So if I have, let's say, orders and customers, customers have orders. If I'm going to delete a customer, I better delete all the orders that go with that customer. That's called referential integrity. 
Well, Scripture has that too. In Scripture, you have referential integrity. You go look up a passage in Scripture, make sure you're not contradicting another passage in Scripture. Better yet, make sure it harmonizes with the rest of Scripture. But you can't do that if the words don't mean something to you. If you see first fruits as just a nice little poetic image and you're missing the liturgy in a temple, you're not going to clue on it and you're just going to let it go. That's why it's important that we study. We can't assume that I can just take scripture, sit down, read it, and I'm just going to understand it. All right. The first 144,000 are the first fruits, which are the ones who came right, the ones who were converted immediately. And most of them were Jews. Right? And that's why, that's why um, St. Saint, Saint John adds, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number, from every nation, from all the tribes of the earth, from all the tribes and, and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So you have the, the first fruits, and then all the people, from all nations. Okay? A number, 144, is what? It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 is, re represents Israel. The 12 tribes of, of Israel, right? And 1,000 means, it's what? It's 100, it's, it's 10 times 10 times 10. So 3 times 10. What is 10? 10 is complete. Three times complete. So that's the completeness of the first fruit. That's all. That's what it means. And it accords with our understanding because it's impossible for St. John to be standing there, physically standing there, looking at them and going, oh, huh, look. Huh, what? That's kind of funny. There's 144,000. Guys, don't move. I need to count. Look, Scripture should not force us to turn off reason. No matter how we look at it, it has to make sense. Okay? You, we can't imagine St. John standing there going, all the ones from the tribe of Levi, raise your hands. All right. Uh, angels, can you start counting with me? You just need to count. Is that, you know, we need 12,000, exactly. Oops, 12,001. Let's start all over again. You know, does it make sense to you? So you have to take Scripture and put it under the light of reason. And if the explanation seems completely absurd, then we've not understood it. Okay? Faith does not do violence to reason. Faith elevates reason. doesn't contradict it. So the explanation we have to come up with had better be reasonable. Alright? Because it's through our reason that we are converted, through nothing else but our reason. Reason is the faculty that is most precious for us. We don't make decisions based on emotions. We don't make decisions based on feelings. Ban the sentence, I feel like. No, you don't feel like, you're thinking. Now again, St. Paul. Christ, risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. Again, first fruits. All right? So, the last feast I'm going to talk to you about very briefly is, of course, the Feast of Weeks, which is, you know, turns into Pentecost.
The Feast of Weeks was celebrated seven weeks later from first fruits. You counted seven weeks, and that's when you had the Feast of Weeks. So therefore, you have first fruits plus 49, that's 50. Penta cost, right? Greek, 50. And that's when that celebration happened. And there, which is really interesting, this, the, you bring to the Lord an offering of two bread made out of wheat, and they are leavened. Leaven is used. Why? Because now we enter into the, the, the season of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leavens the bread with the grace. Okay? It, the Holy Spirit transforms everything, renews everything, even leaven. Leaven used to make, mean sin, now it means grace. That's why, by the way, in the Orthodox churches and many of the Eastern Rite churches, they use leavened bread. Okay? Both make sense. And it was again one of those feasts where, they, where the Jews had to go up to, the, to Jerusalem and that's why when they heard the wind and they saw the apostles coming out, there were so many of them out there because they were, it was a holy day of convocation. They had to be in Jerusalem and that's when it happened. And Peter came out and spoke to them about, about Christ. Now, you see Peter in his speech again, just to put things into... into um, into consideration the you see there is this notion that he's, the Lord is going to pour his spirit he quotes from he's quoting from um, uh, the prophet Joel and he says and it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and daughters shall prophesy and then he quoted the, the Hebrew prophet concerning the coming day of God's wrath and warned that only those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved what is the coming day of the God's wrath the Day of Atonement is the feast that is upcoming. Right? And he tells them, this is the Jesus whom you crucified. This is the Messiah. And they said, what should we do? And he said, believe and be baptized. And what's really close to where he was, on, the, on that side of the temple, there was a big esplanade where he was standing and talking. What was really close to them? The pool of Siloe. Okay? The famous pool where this guy, the guy, the, you know, the paralytic could not go to. They went there and, and 3,000 of them were, were baptized that same day. Okay. So those are the first four feasts which were fulfilled by Christ dying on the cross, his passion, his death on the cross, his resurrection. You get Passover, first fruit, unleavened bread, and the first feast of weeks. The first three weeks, uh, feasts had become Easter. Okay. And then the, the fourth one is actually Pentecost. The next three, which we're going to see next week, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, are the ones with which Revelation deals the most. Why? Because those three feasts, where are they? We don't have a Feast of Trumpet, do we? We don't. Where's the Day of Atonement? And where is Tabernacle? And that's where we find the biggest difference, essentially, between us and those Christians who have no sacraments. Because those three feasts have been completely subsumed, absorbed by the liturgy. They're part of the liturgy. Okay? All three of them. This is the day the Lord has made. Right? And we're going to see how these three feasts play a 
very important role in the book of Revelation. So for instance, in the book of Revelation, you'll see them, you'll see the justified ones holding palms. We hold palm on Palm Sundays. Where did that come from? Those three feasts. Okay. Another really little detail, I'll give you this and I'll, and I'll stop right after. Here is one thing that many commentators of Revelation don't know what to do with. It's in the first chapter of Revelation, uh, the first or second. So, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, this is the Lord speaking to John, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you, to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Ten days. Okay. Why ten? Complete. Yes, but, but does that sound, I mean, does that satisfy you? It's complete. Is that satisfactory to you? It's not to me, is it? Go back to the liturgy. Go back to the calendar I gave you and check this out. The Feast of Trumpets occur when? The first of Tishri. Right? When does the Day of Atonement occur on? Ten days later. Okay? Alright, you might say coincidence. Here's the deal. To the Jews, the tradition was that during those ten days, God opened up the books. Another difficulty we have here, when they say in heaven the books were opened. Well, our thinking is, how many are they? There's supposed to be only one, the book of life. How come we have books? Well, to the Jews, there were actually three books of life. The book of life in which the righteous were recorded, the book of life in which the unrighteous were recorded, and the book of life for everybody else. The ones who, who fate, whose fate has, has not been decided. Guess when their fate is decided? During those ten days. And those days, those ten days were called the days of awe. The days of awe. Because to the Jews, during those ten days, God was going to decide whether they would live or die. If you were to repent and confess your sins, you would live. If not, you die. Okay? One more point. The Feast of Tabernacle. The Feast of Tabernacle is associated with one really interesting fact. Crowns. I'll show you that later. Crowning occurs in the Feast of Tabernacle. Alright? Now, let's go back and read this. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Why a crown? Where's the image of crown coming from? You see, the three feasts. The Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of the Day of uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then, Tabernacle. See how liturgically rich this is? Without the liturgy of the temple, we will start to speculate about the tent. It's complete, it means a lot, it means it's going to be a long time, and it actually means it's just a short time. And we're into mathematical approximation, none of which is satisfying. 
You go back to the temple, you go back to the liturgy, you put it all together, and then suddenly you understand that what, the reason why God gave the liturgy in the first place. He gave the liturgy as the royal road to life. And it is our liturgical life that changes the world. That's revelation to you. That's the, important, that's the importance of revelation. It's the way we live the liturgy that changes the world. So next week, hopefully, we'll go through the remaining feasts, try to understand them a little bit better, and then we'll move on. I know it's a lot of information, but to really appreciate this book for what it is, I see no other way other than getting into some interesting approximation, which I'm not interested in. So I hope that by now some of those passages in the book are starting to clarify or at least start to fit in a context. If you've been studying this and working at it, you should be able to go to Revelation, even on your own, and start to read it and start to see how those images have their sources in what we talked about. And that would be already a big plus if you could just do that. So God bless you and keep up the good work. Keep studying this. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.